welcome to another Pastor Duke podcast. We're going to have fun today. I have two of my best friends in the whole wide world, men of God. I think over 100 years of pastoral service here, missionaries and church planters and preachers. And uh, thank you for tuning us in. I'm uh, going to be tackling today a topic that if it hasn't been in your face, it probably will be as you seek to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. It's on the uh, biblical doctrine of predestination and election, kind of the theological controversy between Calvinism and uh, John Calvin. From what years was that, Pastor Larry? 16th century in the 1500s. Yeah, and then... uh, Jacob Arminius, who thought you could lose your salvation. About what years was that? Same period. Same period. And so I tell, you know, I hate labels. I think we all do. You know, are you a Calvinist? Are you Arminius? Are you, I, I hate that. I just say, I love Jesus and don't want to be involved in all the controversy, but it is part of the deal. Jesus said there'd be false teachers and, and we need to be rightly divide the word of God. So that's what we're uh, going to uh, try to do today and bring 100 years plus service uh, to the table. Try to be a blessing for uh, you. Most of you haven't been too deeply involved in this, but you will be facing it. I like to tell people I'm Arminian to the cross. Whosoever will may come and drink of the water of life freely. And then I'm sort of a Calvinist from the cross. I don't think you can lose your salvation once you've really gotten it. So uh, both of these men, uh, uh, missionary Jay Abish is with us today. And I've asked Jay to give us just a, a just a quick intro on how he first encountered uh, this teaching. Well, I was saved in uh, November 1976. And um, in 1982, I went on staff, and in 1983, I met uh, a young man who was a student of my uncle's when he was a reading teacher, and he was a Christian, and he was a mutual friend of someone who came to our church, and uh, we had a discussion, and I found out that he was he was Calvinist, and what was interesting, I quoted John 3.16, for God so loved the world, and he just said, the world is not quantitative, it's qualitative, it's the elect of all the nations of the world. And I came away just scratching my head because it's just not what it says. But he believed that that's what it meant. So big old shockeroo, one of the major doctrines of the Bible for God so loved the world. I'd call that bedrock uh, scripture as we're we're looking at. Larry, when did you first encounter this uh, controversy? You know, I'd like to bring that in, but I've got some things I want to share incorporated into our Sure. Podcast. I'd like to bring that out. To my audience, he's well prepared. I'm sailing by the seat of my pants here. So (laughs) my listeners are used to that. (laughs) You know, without a doubt, uh, Calvinism, uh, I think we could all agree, is probably the one of the most controversial subjects of the church today. Yet I feel that it demands a healthy and robust discussion, which we're having today. You know, I remember something quoted by you many years ago, Duke, and you said, if anything is divine, it has no fear of rational inquiry. And that certainly applies to Calvinism. You know, if the assertions of Calvinism on total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, and so on, if that's all from God and if it's all divine and it's all true, then we should not be afraid to study its claims and to see if they hold up biblically. Mm-hmm. Let God be true, and every man a liar is written that you may be justified in our sayings and might overcome when we are judged. You know, before we look at their claims biblically, which is the most important part, uh, I'd like to look at uh, 
Calvinism historically? You know, was Calvinistic thinking the conviction of the apostles or the early church? Well, historically, Calvinistic theology was not the belief of either the apostles or the early church fathers. They didn't hold to that. However, it was introduced by St. Augustine uh, back in the first century, but it never gained traction. (laughs) And I believe that even Calvinists would agree with that. Well, in other words, for hundreds of years, even over a millennium of years, uh, the kingdom of Christ went forward, people getting saved, baptized, added to the church, missionaries gone all over the world. This wasn't even a controversy. You know, what's interesting, too, in teaching church history, uh, I have found that Augustine was um, influenced by a cult of the early uh, centuries called the Manichaeans, mm-hmm. and they um, did not believe that man had free will. Interesting. Well, yeah, it's my hope and desire that uh, our audience will listen to our perspective today, both on the, the philosophical pitfalls and the biblical overreach of modern-day Calvinism. Now, I'm going to confess to you that I'm not 100% accurate on all my theological positions, but this one I feel personally confident about. Because we've been emotionally <laughs> affected yeah. in and this plus, doctrinal battle. Plus, we've done our research. Yeah. You know, I think it's a delicate thing to debate our differences on Bible doctrine because it often breeds contempt. And I have a number of dear friends that are Calvinists and that will be listening to this podcast, but it's my prayer that our differences don't divide us. But at the same time, it'll challenge us to think about the matter of election all the way through to its logical conclusion. You know, only the devil wins religious arguments. You know, God's not glorified when we fight over doubtful disputations. Uh, That's pretty clear in Romans 14. But at the end of the day, I don't think we want to follow either John Calvin or Jacob Arminius or some eloquent theologian, but we want to follow and listen to the Holy Spirit of God. And by the way, that's his responsibility. It's his responsibility to give us understanding in the Word of God. Uh, Psalm 119, David twice prayed, Lord, give me understanding that I may keep your word and obey it with all my heart. I'd like to jump in uh, a moment here, just in my personal battle when I first faced Calvinism, and uh, it was dramatic for me. My home church split over this doctrine, and Pastor Larry's wife, Marianne, is from my home church, so her and I both lived through this, and we had precious friends on both sides uh, of this battle. And I remember just, you know, getting alone and reading this. It was a book called The Sovereignty of God by A.W. Pink. And it was handed to me like, if you really want to walk with God, you got to tune out what the pastor's saying and tune this book in if you want to really have a, a close walk with God. And I was just a, a year old in the Lord. It's all new to me. But I remember in, in James, it says, if any man lack wisdom which would be me, especially in those days, let him ask of God, uh, who give it to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given unto him. And I remember as I was getting really confused by all of this, where I was being told that Jesus didn't really die for everybody. That was just a, a special group called the elect, and God predestined people to go to heaven, and he predestined people to go 
to hell. That didn't settle well with me. And as Jay said, uh, you know, John 3.16 doesn't really mean the whole world, you know. And uh, so I was getting very confused. And I remember as a young Christian just literally crying, got on my knees next to my bed and said, God, Jesus said there'd be confusion and, and I'm in the midst of it. In Jesus' name, I'm willing to go whatever way your word says. I'll, I'll pay the price whatever your word says, but please guide me. I pray for wisdom. And I think that's very important for all of you listeners that, you know, it's the Holy Spirit's job to guide us unto all truth. And as Larry quoted before, that which is divine has no fear of rational inquiry. So this one was very emotional for all of us uh, in this circle. Jay, you had an experience uh, on the mission field in this. You want to jump in with that, that experience? Yes. Um, I was in Quebec for over 20 years as a missionary, a church planner missionary, and a lot of, uh, of course, it's the French-speaking province of Canada. A lot of the uh, theological material and commentaries that were available in French came from Europe and came from Switzerland, and of course that's where John Calvin was, so it was heavily influenced and marked by Calvinism. So before I left the church and came back to the States and retired, I did a whole series for Sunday school on election versus free will, and I addressed all the five points of Calvinism and refuted them biblically, and I did that in French for the church so that it would be protected from falling into this error. And I would like, as Pastor Larry's going to jump back in here in just a moment, because uh, he's the guy that's really well prepared. I'm just the color commentator today. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we approach this doctrinal controversy and we say the word election— well, as non-Calvinist, I believe in election, but we, we, they, the, the, my Calvinist friends, who I've worked very closely with some Calvinist people through the years, it isn't that I don't love them, they don't love me, it's not the issue, but man, I hate, I hate controversy, but I believe in election, but they have a different definition of election, and they have a different meaning for the will of man, they have a different meaning for total depravity. So these major doctrines, they call it tulip theology. You want to identify what the, 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 the tulip doctrines are, Larry? So we believe in the doctrine of election, total depravity, et cetera, but there's a, a totally different meaning on the terms. Well, that's what we're going to be focusing in on a bit today. Yeah, tulip, T-U-L-I-P. The T stands for total depravity. The U stands for unconditional election. The L stands for limited atonement. The I means irresistible grace. And P is uh, perseverance of the saints. You know, what, um, what I'd like to bring out today is thinking the matter through all the way. I mean, there are definitely philosophical disparities in all this. If we don't, if we fail to think it through to a logical conclusion, there's consequences would you, know, you say, Larry, would you say that the philosophical uh, presuppositions, uh, philosophical things really ultimately apply in how we're going to carry out our, our Christian walk? If Christ only died for a handful of people, then we're telling a world that really doesn't even have a chance. So these things have some applications down the road. So it isn't, it's more than just a Bible study. Sure. It'll affect our walk and it really affected my passion. And uh, so I, I keep jumping in here. I, I don't want to mess you up, but uh, 
He's used to me after 40 years. <laughs> You're like a bad habit. I can't get rid of you. <laughs> no, I agree with that. I mean, um, it certainly affects your view of God, your perspective of God. I mean, it affects his nature and his character. Um, That's where it gets emotional. Yes, it does. Absolutely. You know, one thing we do when we interpret anything we read or listen to is we filter it through our own philosophy or our predisposed mindset, whether it's the Bible, a novel, a newspaper, or an article on the website. (laughs) You read it through philosophical lenses. And uh, some might argue that we shouldn't bring philosophy into the process of interpreting the Word of God. But, you know, doesn't Paul warn us uh, to be careful not to be spoiled through philosophy, vain deceit, rudiments of the world, and so on. But he's not saying that philosophy is wrong, but he wants, I believe the warning is, be careful what you listen to. Why? Because there's bad philosophy out there. C.S. Lewis, who was, a, by the way, an outspoken opponent of Calvinism, once said, good philosophy must exist, if for any other reason, so that bad philosophy can be answered. And uh, I heard... <laughs> One apologist say, while it is possible to use bad philosophy to interpret the text, it is impossible to use no philosophy to interpret the text. You know, when I first learned of Calvinism, you know, that was, here's my story. I first learned about it within two years of my salvation journey. As I mentally processed the teachings of John Calvin, like on unconditional election, my mind or my philosophical lens was telling me that doctrine does not jive with my understanding of either the nature or character of God. I heard um, R.C. Sproul ask that question when he first heard about unconditional election. What was his knee-jerk reaction? He said, my knee-jerk reaction was it wasn't fair. That's not fair. Well, you know what? He's right. It isn't. Uh, you know, but later he departed that position of it's he, not fair and embraced Calvinism. He did. He did. So but, I'd say he's he's a kind of a good guy on on the other side of this debate, and I think we have a lot more people on on our side. Uh, Doctor Charles Stanley, um, A. Uh, w. Tozer, Tozer, uh, Adrian Rogers, on and on it goes. Uh, most people throughout church history. And by far, the vast majority did not embrace uh, the five points of, of of Calvinism. You know, when I first heard about unconditional election, my mindset after reading the Bible for two years went, well, what about all the whosoevers in the Bible? You know, you had brought up that one verse, uh, whosoever, whosoever will may come and drink of the waters of life freely. That's exactly what went into my mind when I heard about unconditional election. It wasn't whosoever God arbitrarily chooses can drink of the waters of life. So, you know, these are the things I say we have a philosophical lens. I think it's something you absolutely have to factor in when you're interpreting these things. When I mentally process limited atonement, that Jesus died only for the elect, that it was qualitative. Is that what you said? Not quantitative? Is that what that fellow said? Um, you know, my mind immediately went to John 3, 16. It also went to a lot of other verses because, like, especially First John 2, 2, where, G, where John says Jesus didn't j- just die for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Uh, your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, and then I'm going to have Jay jump in. I just want to uh, try to clarify for the audience uh, <laughs> what all of this uh, implies on the character of God. Um, limited atonement would simply mean that Jesus didn't really die for everybody, and I think the scriptures are very clear that he did. Um, irresistible grace, which we're coming to in a moment, means that you couldn't go to hell if you wanted to because God sovereignly made it happen, and that would have taken away our will. And I think the scriptures are bedrock clear uh, that we have a will. God planted a, a tree in the middle of the garden, told Adam not to touch it, and consequences if you do. Knowing in advance, <laughs> this is huge, knowing in advance what Adam would do. He knew they would take of the fruit. He knew sin would enter the world in John 3. He knew Cain would kill Abel in John Genesis chapter 4. He knew Noah would be, have to be, begin to build an ark in Genesis chapter 6. But that's where the love of God kicks in. Uh, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain from when? From the foundation of the world. God had a plan from the beginning. He gave man a choice. Why would Joshua say, choose you this day uh, whom you will serve? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. How could that be if there was no choice, if there was no will? And so there are huge implications to these doctrines and they affect our everyday life. And I've always seen in, in my watch, it seems like those who are deeply intellectual, which does, that would exclude me, uh, don't seem to, it seems that a lot of those who really embrace Calvinism have more of an intellectual approach to scriptures. I would have more of a practical, more of a passionate, more of I want to win souls to Christ and I'm not really worried who is and who isn't the elect. I'm just going after everybody and let God sort it out. So, Jay, jump in with some thoughts on this. Well, thank you, Duke. Um, you know, going back to the fall, we need to understand that once Adam and Eve did fall, the Calvinists will say that because he was dead spiritually, that total depravity really means total inability, and this is foundational for total depravity. Huge. I believe in total depravity. I don't think man can save himself but I do not believe the scriptures teach total inability because the spirit of man is still active within him. We look at the Bible term for death, and scripturally speaking in strictest sense, it's to be cut off from the life of God. And you at the quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins. Before Christ comes into our life, we are dead in sins because we're cut off from the life of God. But we are not spiritually inactive. And um, Talbot and Crampton in their book, uh, Calvinism, Hyper-Calvinism and Arminianism, says this, The Bible stresses the total inability of fallen man to respond to the things of God. I would take issue with that. There are plenty of scriptures that teach that man's spirit is active. But my proof text for unsaved man being able to respond to the things of God would be found in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, where the adulterous woman was taken by the Pharisees and brought to Jesus. And they wanted to stone her. And they said, the law you know, says we should stone her. What say thee? 
And Jesus stooped down on the ground and he wrote twice on the ground with his finger. And I believe with all my heart, I can't prove this, but I think he was writing the law. Because then he asked them, whosoever is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Well, from the eldest unto the youngest, being convicted in their conscience, they all went out and left the woman alone with Jesus. And this shows us something. That though the spirit might be dead, quote-unquote, because it's cut off from the life of God, it communicates with the conscience. And these men were convicted in their conscience by the law of God. So man can be convicted in his conscience and make a decision accordingly. And they were unsaved, unregenerated when they were convicted. Exactly. And so I think... It, it, there goes Jay dragging the Bible into this argument again. He always does that. <laughs> Larry, uh, that's a great point, Jay. Larry, j- can jump I, in. Can I weigh in on this? Yeah, I think absolutely. that's a great point on total inability, Jay. So that kind of leads me. There's a sound bite I'd like us, your audience, to listen to. It's a Q&A session, and there's a lady, with, it was with John MacArthur, and a lady challenges John MacArthur with a reasonable question after he had just taught um, the crowd, the audience, about total inability. And I'd like to play it for you right now. Dr. MacArthur, you gave us two scriptures um, that popped out to me. The natural man cannot get to God in his unaided condition. And then in Acts, God now commands all men everywhere to repent. So does that mean... God would help everyone to repent since he commands it? I'm uh, the, the question you're asking is, why would God command all men everywhere to repent if they can't unless he, unless he helps them. aids them? The answer to the question is, I don't know why he chose to do it that way, but that is the way it is. Okay. <laughs> Let me just do a recap. Can I do a recap on that? Um, this lady asked the question, why does God call all men to repent when they do not have the ability to respond? Basically, that's her question. And then she makes the comment, uh, does that mean that God will or aid or help all men to repent since he commanded it? Now, the teaching of total inability is exactly what Jay just shared that since we're dead, the Calvinist view is that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And that they also, by the way, use 1 Corinthians 2.14, where it says the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness. So in essence, the man, the spirit of man is so dead that he could not hear, he cannot see, he cannot understand, and he cannot believe because he has no ability to respond to God. And uh, I wish we had that lady here today uh, because I think we could tell her that God indeed does give every man the ability to respond in repentance. John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, He is that light that, that lighteth, lighteth the, the path of every man that cometh into the world. So every means everybody? <laughs> For God so loved the world means everybody that whosoever will may drink of the water of the means everybody. <laughs> I think so. Are you trying to say this is not a mystery? <laughs> <laughs> 
I think that's what I'm trying to say. Are you trying to tell me that God does aid us to do this? I mean, uh, yeah, God has aid us because God has sent us his son to aid us. He has given us the Holy Spirit of God to convict an unbelieving world, according to John 16, of their sin of unbelief, of the righteousness of Christ and the judgment to come. God has given us the word of God to aid us. But unfortunately, none of those aids are sufficient for the extreme Calvinist. Yeah, you know, I, I'd just like to weigh in on this. Um, you know, I just think of getting back to this total inability. Isaiah 118 says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I like the word here, reason together. Because man does have the ability in his spirit to reason from the scriptures and to reason with God. And I, I find it very uh, very strong here in Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? So God's burden is repentance. That's his burden. And he tries to reason with us from the scriptures about our need to turn from sin and to turn to Christ. That's exactly what Peter wrote, that God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. I have my Bible open to John 3, 17. We talk about bedrock scripture, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. Well, look what he says in verse 17. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God wants everybody to be saved. But see, we're getting into the creeping up to the to me, which answered, turn the lights on for me on this one little thought. God knows in advance everything that's going to happen. We see present and somewhat the past, and that gets a little blurry for us, but we do not see the future. God in his omniscience sees past present and future. He knows who will. He wasn't shocked the day Jay, Larry, and Duke came to Christ. He knew that day was coming. That doesn't mean he made it happen. Uh, God's foreknowledge, which is undisputed, Calvinist and us would totally agree. God knows everything, past, present, and future. We agree. But his foreknowledge is not causative. He gave us a will and still knew what we would do with it. To me, that is solid uh, omniscience. That is bigger omniscience than if he made it all happen. He gives us a will and still knows what we're going to do with it. So I'm getting kind of excited here. Yeah, you know, that's, that's one of the key things when I first started out on this study, and I believe this is foundational, because for the Calvinist, the decrees are, of God are written in stone in the universe, and there's no changing that. And that's not what we see in Scripture. And what I came up with in looking at several Scriptures, like in 1 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 14, when Dave was fleeing from Saul, during that time he had saved the men from Keilah from the Philistines. Knowing that Saul was going to come to him, he asked for the priest with the ephod, and he asked God this question. If Saul comes to Keilah, will the men of Keilah deliver me to him? And God said, yes, they will. They will. 
They Where's will. that word well so, again? So what, what did David do? He left Keilah, and Saul stopped pursuing him in Keilah. So there was a different outcome, but there's two potential outcomes based on David's decision. And what we find in Scripture is this, and this is a key principle that I came up with by God's grace. God knows what he would have done if what did not happen happened. He is eternal and knows the outcome of all possible decisions. I'll give you another example. Ahab's sin in sparing Ben-Hadad, the Syrian king. He spared him in a battle. God sent a prophet and said, listen, I appointed this guy, Ben-Hadad, to utter destruction. That was God's sovereign will. That was countered by Ahab letting him live. So God instituted plan B. Your life is going to be in exchange for his life, Ahab. Different outcome. And, you know, even in Esther, if Esther had not taken action, Mordecai said deliverance is going to come from another place. You don't know if you're here, you know, for such a time as this. So God's sovereign will, of course, he was going to save the Jews. Do you want Esther to be used? She exercised her will. Yeah, exactly. I'm going in, and if I perish, I perish. Yeah. See, to me, it, 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 when you eliminate the will of man, you have gone to the realm of absurdity. You've just thrown theology uh, to the wind. You've, you've taken vague scriptures and used them to override crystal clear scriptures of which, I mean, you just gave three right off the cuff. Pick up, Lair. You're, you're guiding things today. <laughs> uh, free will is sovereignty of God and the free will is certainly a, uh, a controversial subject between Calvinists and non-Calvinists. I really balked when I first heard the understanding or the, the learned about the uh, definition of the sovereignty of God. I, I know A.W. Pink. I've not read any of his books, but you guys have. Um, but he was an extremist on the sovereignty of God. And uh, what extreme Calvinism believes is that God is so sovereign that he decrees everything, including evil. And uh, my question is, if God is so sovereign and God is holy and God is just, why doesn't he even even allow evil in the world today? Do you want to weigh in on that? Well, I believe, again, God in his foreknowledge understood that man would fall and that evil would come into the world. But we must understand something. Before there was a fall in the physical realm with Adam and Eve, there was a fall in the spiritual realm with the anointed cherub, Lucifer, who became Satan and who was the serpent in the garden. And uh, so evil was in the world. And that's true. We read in Scripture Whereas by one man sin entered to the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men. But evil is a fruit, is a consequence of a fallen humanity. So God, okay, we can say God allowed that, but what about the cross? Did not Jesus take our sin on the cross, and didn't that crown of thorns represent the curse of nature upon him? So it's as if God said, okay, this has happened, but I'm going to take care of all of this at the cross. Evils in the world, yes, but because of evil and because of sin, God is able to demonstrate his love, his grace, and his mercy. 
I love how Jay just kind of takes it to the next level deeper. <laughs> I'm taking notes as you guys are speaking. But as I approached that years ago as a new believer, follower of God, called to preach, I want to win everybody I can to Jesus. Um, and I was, you know, people would say, well, did God create all things? And the answer is, yeah, he created all things. And they said, well, then God created evil. I said, no, God didn't create evil. God created volition. God created choice. And God is love. And without choice, I don't think you can have love. My wife is not a robot that somebody that I got to program, you know, she's a beautiful woman. So I programmed her. I love you, Duke. I love you, Duke. I love you, Duke. What do you want me to do next? You know, no, no, no. That's she's not a robot. She is a child of God created in God's image. God breathed in her nostrils, the breath of life. She's a living soul. She has a mind, body, soul, spirit, choice, will. And uh, if God pre-programmed everybody, everything, that's not love. That's just uh, that's just pure sovereignty. Uh, and God doesn't protect when he does his uh, autobiography, God doesn't say, I'm sovereign, I'm sovereign, I'm sovereign. God says, no, God is love. So that seems to be the priority as he introduces himself to man. And a love created volition. God created choice. God put one choice for man in that Garden of Eden. And, um, and then Jesus kind of expanded that when he said, "If you, in I think it's First John, if you love me, keep my commandments. They only had one commandment. That's all it took. They could obey God in love, in worship, or they could disobey God, put self first, uh, to turn, had the ability to turn from God. And of course they had the ability to turn back to God, even in their fallen nature. When God sovereignly, uh, took those animals, uh, substitutionary death, blood sacrifice, they had, even in their fallen condition, they had the ability to receive those coats of skins. And the Bible tells us for concerning our salvation, as many as received Christ to them, he gives power to become the sons of God. When we act upon our will, we receive Christ by faith. Then he regenerates us in that very moment of, of salvation. So, uh, anyway, I, I feel better getting that off my chest. <laughs> God is not the author of sin. God is the author of volition and volition by its very nature. Love by its very nature demands volition and volition opens the door for sin. So God is not the author of sin. Satan is. Man is. We the Man jumps in with Satan in rebellion against God. So pick her up from there, Pastor Larry. You know, if God made a robot world and he decreed everything, we would be robots. Mm -hmm. But God chose to create a moral universe. And the only way we can live in a moral universe and make moral choices is to have a free will. So we're not artificial intelligence. Huh? <laughs> no, we're not. And I think you brought this up very clearly. It's impossible to love God without possessing free will. You know, the great commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. That being said, having free will also opens up the possi possibility of us doing evil as well. And that question is often asked, uh, why did God allow evil? Well, God thought it was worth having a moral universe, and that's why he allows evil. He, he still hates it, but he allowed it to give man the power to choose. And lets man know that even though we've sinned, 
grace is greater than all of our sin. Mercy is extended to all of us who have sinned. I like to jump in on that that point of loving God. Uh, the greatest moment in the history of the universe between God and me, for me, the greatest moment is when Jesus died upon the cross for my sins. God sovereignly chose to pay for my sins. That's my greatest moment between God and I. For God's greatest moment between him and I is the moment, June 18th, 1972, about 8 p.m., I got on my knees and I asked Jesus. I know he convicted me of my sin. Nobody can come to me except God draws them. I just believe God draws everybody. John 1, 9, we hit that already. He's, uh, he lights the path of every man. He lit my path. He knocked on the door of my heart, and I received him. I opened the door, and for God, that was the greatest moment in eternity between him and I. And you take away the will of man, make me a robot. That, that It's meaningless. It's, he, knew, he programmed it. He made it happen. I didn't glorify him a bit. And so um, I'm getting emotional again. I thought you were going to be the one getting emotional, Larry. <laughs> I, I am a little emotional, but I'm trying to suppress my feelings. But, I, you know, I know that we have in our audience a number of people at the crossroads. Some are reading Calvinistic material, but they haven't really bought into it. And uh, I think there's more of that out there than there is non-Calvinistic material. Um, I think that's why there's been a resurgence in modern-day Calvinism. But what I would like to do for the benefit of those at the crossroads to define exactly what an unconditional election means or how it's defined, and here's what I wrote. In eternity past, before God even created man, he predetermined arbitrarily who of his creation would become the elect and spend eternity with him in heaven and who would become the non-elect or those who are reprobate in vessels of destruction and spend eternity without him in hell. That is called unconditional election. John Piper, I'm just quoting what he said, I heard in one of his uh, sound bites. He said, God chooses who will believe and undeservingly be saved in spite of their sin. And God chooses unilaterally before they created who will believe. He also passes by those that will not believe. Thus, God decides who will rebel and deservingly be lost because of their sin. Now, (laughs) I have major problems with that. If God chooses the non-elect to rebel, and if God is so sovereign that he decrees everything even evil— then why does man deserve to be lost if God not only determined it, but he caused it? Mm-hmm. Predetermined to be saved or predamned to go to hell with no choice whatsoever. I would agree with that gal. It, it's not fair. And God is a very fair and loving God. Jay's ready to jump in here. Yeah, when we talk about unconditional election, that's not scriptural because we see the process of election in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, the marriage, the parable of the marriage feast. There were some servants that were, or there were people bidden to the marriage. They were bidden. So you could say there was an elect people that were bidden to the marriage, but they didn't want to come. They had excuses. So they had they, a will, huh? Yeah. So the ruler sent out his servants. Go into the highways and byways. 
and um, tell them to come to the marriage feast. And then at the end of this parable in verse 14, Jesus says this, For many are called, but few are chosen. Who are the chosen? The ones that responded to the call. Wow. That is the process of election. That's huge, man. I've wrestled with this and talked about it for 50 years, and I've never, I've never pulled that in. It's like, there you go. There's, there's the answer. Human uh, volition, choice. To me, it, it, it just is kind of crosses over into the land of the absurd when you get into irresistible grace and uh, people damned without any choice. And uh, so I, I don't want to just keep saying the same thing over and over again. Jump back in, Larry. Guide us. Well, you know, when you talk about irresistible grace, uh, what the Calvinist position on that is, is good, when God elected people in eternity past and he arbitrarily chose who would be the elect and who would not be the elect, uh, when he elected them, he regenerates them. He makes their spirit alive. And in, in essence, they're born again uh, before they're even born. They're born again even before. And then when they're born into this world, it's kind of like God's already zapped them. <laughs> God's already quickened them. He's quickened their spirit. And over the fullness of time, he will give them the gift of repentance, the gift of faith. Um, but he's not given that to the non-elect. But my Bible tells me otherwise. Mm-hmm. My Bible tells me, uh, and I think it's in uh, Titus 2.11, for the grace of God which brings salvation has appeared to all men. And it doesn't say anything about it being irresistible. Mm-hmm. If that were the case, everybody, we'd have a universal salvation. Mm-hmm. But the grace of God has appeared to everybody. Yeah. Romans chapter one brings that, you know, nobody is without excuse because God has given that light uh, to all men uh, of his of eternal Godhead and as creator. Jay, jump in. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39, Jesus says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh into the name of the Lord. This is grace being resisted. Mm-hmm. Every time somebody sins, they've broken the will of God. Every time somebody rejects Jesus as Savior, they've broken the will of God. And then the Calvinists would come in and say, well, God is sovereign and his will cannot be broken. And yet God's will is broken over and over and over again. So we're giving, uh, I think, some fabulous um, illustrations from Scripture, a clarification on the heart of God. You know, we're really talking about the heart of God Um when Jesus is upon that cross, we're, we're on his heart. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. God is not willing that any should perish. I know there's a, a lot of verses that we haven't covered yet that our Calvinist friends would use. We're going to look in Romans chapter 9 uh, in another podcast coming up uh, next week. 
to show, because these are not ignorant and unlearned men who, who drift into Calvinism. They're, they're sincere people. I think they're trying to um, discern the will of God or the, the word of God, and they're, they're looking at words and coming up with different meanings th- than we do. But I think we're laying the biblical foundation for the heart of God. So we'll look at what we might call the problem text, Ephesians 1, Romans 9, um, uh, in the next podcast, but I think we're really laying the the biblical foundation. Uh, well, I like to call it the bedrock scriptures. I was taught in biblical hermeneutics, and I hold to this today and will forever, that you take scripture at its face value. You let the words mean what the words do. And, you know, there's the historical setting for sure. But I go back to the original Hebrew words in the Old Testament, the Greek words in the New Testament, but there are scriptures to me that are bedrock, and then there's the, the, the scriptures that are a little bit more obscure. And you never let the clear be explained away by the obscure. And uh, I think that's what happens every time uh, when people drift into Calvinism. They'll take a word like the elect, which is clearly in scripture, and I believe in the doctrine of election, but according to foreknowledge, not eliminating the will of man to accommodate that one word. And so I, I think when you take a look at John 3.16, John 3.17, Isaiah 53.6, all we like sheep of God are destroyed. We've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him, Christ, the iniquity of who? Of us all. So to me, those are the bedrock scriptures. And then we, in, in, in the light of those, then we look at the obscure words of election. What, is, what does total depravity really mean? And that's when they come up with interpretations and new definitions that really weren't what the apostles believed and the early church founders believed. And, of course, it came into the theological realm in the 16th century. So jump in there. You know, when we speak about election, I think your audience, the audience needs to understand that we do believe in election. Absolutely. You know, we believe we're elected, but we believe we're elected based upon God's foreknowledge. Mm-hmm. First Peter 1-2 says we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. But it's all how you define what the, what the word foreknowledge. What does it mean? Well, my understanding is it comes from a Greek word, prognosis. And it literally means to be known to be known beforehand. So in so my it understanding, it means the same in Greek as it does in English. That yeah, it's you got <laughs> to knows ahead of time. Foreknowledge, just take it literally. God elected us based upon His foreknowledge. My understanding is that because God is omniscient, because God sees the future, because He lives in eternity, that He knew ahead of time every human being He ever created how they would respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And based upon his foreknowledge, he elected us. There you go. It's pretty simple to me. And it's very comforting, too. You know, I just want to add, and I don't even know if you guys might even agree with this, but this is something that I came to in a conclusion once I studied this for several years before I presented it to the church up in Quebec. Lucifer fell. God did not elect to save Lucifer. Some of the angels fell. God did not elect to save those angels. When man fell, God elected to save humanity. And we see that in God clothing Adam and Eve in the skins of the animal. Um, And so God's heart was for humanity 
to be saved. So humanity, in my point of view, is an elect body, just like Israel is an elect body, but are all Jews saved? Uh No. Humanity is an elect body. Are all humans saved? No. Who's going to be elect? Who's going to be found in that elect body? Those who respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I agree with you 100%. (laughs) How many of my listening audience thinks Jay did not kill as many brain cells as I did in 1969? <laughs> <laughs> I love your insight to the scriptures, yeah, Jay. Really you too, Larry, but uh, I think he's shining bright today. I appreciate that a lot. I think we're coming to the close of the podcast today. For today, we're going to jump into the, the more exegetical details on the problem text where we define the words differently that leads people into Calvinism. Yeah, we're going to be looking at Romans nine, and yeah, we're gonna we're gonna give the mic a lot to uh, our my our friend Jay Abish here. Uh, I've read his material on it; it's well researched. The important thing about Romans nine is context. What's the original intent of the author? You know, what is he really trying to communicate? And God is never undoing something that he's already done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the bedrock I think we've laid very clearly today, John three sixteen, and is Jay learned from the beginning, God so loved the world, and then seven years later somebody comes along, well, that's not really what it means. And you know, that the enlightenment that came from those that there. And I want to kind of close out today some thoughts that, you know, I have uh, Calvinistic uh, friends, uh, and uh, I've helped plant a church with a, a Calvinist brother, and I'll take a bullet for him and take a bullet for me. So this isn't a point of fellowship, but it is a point uh, of of passion. And uh, I know I would have Charles Spurgeon. He was a Calvinist, but he he you, he preached Calvinism as it. As he felt, it appeared occasionally in Scripture, a, a spot in Romans 9, as he would see it, a spot in Ephesians 1, but it, it didn't come into every sermon. You can hear a 100 sermons by Charles Spurgeon or read them. They're not recorded because it was before technology would allow that to happen. But Spurgeon, um, uh, he, he didn't bring it into every message. And some of these guys that are big proponents of it today, every time you hear John Piper, I've heard him live and I like the guy, but uh, every time he speaks, it's predestined and God's, you know, chosen. From, uh, and so I think in that, it's just totally out of balance. The Bible says a false balance is abomination of the Lord. So I think there's a, a biblical balance. And so we'll kind of conclude this podcast, um, well, kind of some of the implications of Calvinism, kind of a little bit of the history you went into, uh, Pastor Larry. And we don't want to be followers of men. We want to be followers of Christ. So, hey, guys, uh, thanks a lot for uh, jumping back in. We are recording here in uh, Rock Hill, South Carolina. I just bought a house down here a couple of days ago. And so these guys are going to be my neighbors. So probably we'll have them on the podcast again. We'll tackle some tough stuff. Three minds are better than one. Amen. Thanks, guys, for being with me today. And audience, Thank as you. always. Thank you. Uh, as always, thanks for tuning in. And appreciate it if you'd like and share this uh, podcast with your friends. Help to multiply. And um, God bless you for now. See you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>